Hi, I'm Matt Curtis, founder of Smart City Policy Group. Our team of former policymakers works on bridging the divide between the innovation economy and government. This chat brings together discussions with local leaders, innovators, and stakeholders, while we all try to highlight solutions that work. The world is changing and new ideas are coming to communities every day. Let's highlight the solutions and the best practices and let's hear what works for local leaders. Here now are Smart City Policy Stories. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. This is another episode of Smart City Policy Stories. My name is Matt Curtis, and we're joined today by the incredible mayor of the city of Kansas City, one of America's it cities, and I would argue he will probably tell you is one of the it cities or the it city in America, former Mayor Sly James. Mayor James, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Matt, it's always a pleasure to see you, my friend. Hope you're well. Uh, very well. Thanks so much for uh, being with us today. And and in all truth, uh, Kansas City really is just one of those cities that the story is just incredible about what's happening with the city, uh, and it's 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 done some remarkable things in in the, in the recent years. And we know many of those years uh, overlap with your your leadership there and your time there. One important issue to uh, start with, just really quickly, you're speaking to someone who's in Central Texas. We have incredible barbecue in Central Texas. You have great barbecue in Kansas City. Which is better? Uh, your brisket's better, and we beat you on every other thing. Ah, thanks for giving us the brisket. I was actually gonna. Uh, I'm, not gonna I'm not gonna argue with what I think is uh, self-evident. You you do good bris- brisket. Uh, I've had brisket in Texas on several occasions, but uh, I'm sorry, we got you beat on rest. Well, and you're doing such re- such remarkable things there as a city, and and we're really excited about it. Obviously, the Kansas City Chiefs have done uh, and have had have had amazing uh, time, and you know uh, have, they've really become one of America's it. Uh, teams to follow. So it's just a great city, great sports town, uh, and great town all, all around. And, and we're really impressed to continue to watch it. Now, you stepped down as mayor not long ago, and you did something incredible. Not all mayors do this, not all elected officials do this, and that sort of thing. And you wanted to give a guide to people in elected office about where we can go, what we should be doing. It's a guide for Democratic Party leadership. It's called the Opportunity Agenda, and it's an amazing read. What made you write the book? Well, uh, to be honest, it was an idea of a good friend, Winston Fisher, a developer in New York. Uh, We share a lot of political philosophies. And frankly, we've always thought that government should be more about providing people with the opportunities to raise themselves up by giving them the tools, uh, child care for people so that they can, uh, mothers and, and women can get out into the workforce, follow their own dreams and careers, but also while we're building that workforce of the future. Uh, things like portable benefits for entrepreneurs so that you know, you, you're not afraid to leave your job simply because you have benefits there uh, and you don't want to get the benefits, but you can leave your job, start a business, and then have portable benefits as well, particularly things like pension plans and those types of things uh, that you might not do absent uh, being involved with a business that already has a plan set up. Uh, We talk a lot about uh, uh, access to capital, particularly for women and minorities, because it's it's, uh, amazing to me that we haven't fully come to grips with the concept that if we had uh, better access to capital for women and minorities, 
we'd have more jobs, we'd have more creativity, we'd have more things to market, we'd have more things to buy in, to sell, and we would improve life. We have a lot of people with a lot of talent that simply have not had the opportunity to use that talent because of access, lack of access to resources they need. You know, talking about those resources, one of the things you outline in the book so well, and it's a great read. It's, you know, it's it's actually quite a fun read. It, it seems like it's geared towards city policymaking minds or government policymaking minds. But really, it's a book for anyone. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a great read. One of the things you outline is that small businesses are really the backbone of our economy. And I, I wrote this statistic once for one of the mayors I work with. I wrote this line based on this statistic about Austin that uh, small business is big business in Austin, meaning, and, and it's the same everywhere, there are more people working for small businesses than there are major employers. It's incredible. It's not really even close. Uh, the small business has been by far the biggest job generator uh, of this generation, for sure. Uh, you know, it used to be that everybody wanted to go to work for the big factory, etc. but with the advents of various technological advances and also with the ability of people to access capital to some extent and building wealth over time and being able to put an idea to use they're able to get out and do it a little bit more. You know, it, it shouldn't be lost on us that all those big businesses, the ones with a whole lot of employees, started as small businesses. Right. They didn't jump out of the gate with a thousand employees. They started with one person with an idea and then another and another, and all of a sudden you're growing. Uh, if we want to continue to have those types of successes, then we need to plant seeds and watch them grow. And those seeds are small businesses and entrepreneurs. The, the problem one of the problems that we've got is is that government policy has been geared towards the big business. Tax policy looks at big business, not small business necessarily, big business and what they want, uh, and access to capital and resources. Politics itself, bigger businesses are able to influence politics on the, on the state and federal level at a much higher and effective rate than small businesses because small businesses, by their very name and nature, are... A disparate. They're all over the place. They're different, doing different things, have different needs. But big businesses, the, the Fortune 500s, their 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 goals are pretty clear in most instances, and that's maximize profits and the return on investment, and protect their stockholders. They have a major and outsized influence on the political situations. If we, for example, would devote as much money to uh, entrepreneurs and small businesses as we do to granting incentives to businesses to move from one city to the next, we'd be far better off. Incredible. That's so true. That's so true. And there's so many great ideas out there. Uh, and that concept of, uh, you know, supporting those great ideas would do nothing but help buoy local economies and, and, and nas the, the national economy. So another issue area that you spoke about at length in the book is uh, about child care. Yes. It's eye opening. I mean, people not having decent access to child care and the impact on what that does to a home, to uh, to the you know parents at home, both being able to work the way that they want to work. Uh, it's a it's a it's almost monumental. It's it's so hard to to conceive of how do we grasp or how do we deal with that issue. Well, that issue has impacts that ripple throughout the entire economy. If families do not have adequate child care, then probably one person in that family, if it's a two-parent family, are going to stay home. 
generally, that's the woman. And I don't mean to say that in any sort of uh, biased way, but the reality is when you look around uh, and when you consider the socialization of people in this country uh, over time, women have been the homemakers, the caregivers, and that's still true to a large extent today. So A, once that decision is made that they're going to stay home, they are no longer eligible for the workforce. So we're taking people out of the workforce and giving them a job that does not pay, but one that is harder than the one they would have been doing if they were in the workforce. Okay. Um, So we're losing on the workforce end and we're also losing on the family end. The other thing too is, is that, um, you know, we cited a city that that recognized the economic impact of not having childcare available and what it did to their economy and then their way to fix it and find a way around that and how it boosts the economy. Those are real issues. If people, families, parents have a way to take care of their children during that first five years of life before they enter kindergarten on a full-time basis, then that's going to enhance the workforce, is going to make people happier, it's going to get women back out into the workforce who will not then suffer from a lack of social security benefits over time because they haven't been in the workforce as long, b uh, truncated career uh, ladders because they haven't been in the workforce that long, and c society having to fi- uh, not benefiting from the input of half of the society and their perspective on the issues that really matter, and also their way of doing things. Women lead differently than men. And the best combination is women and men leading together because now you get the entire panoply of approaches to leadership and governance. So childcare is crucial to getting people involved in the economy. And it's also crucial to make sure that we are raising kids that are gonna be able to compete in an uh, increasingly technological world. Oh yeah. You know, uh, and I think the city that you highlighted was Crawfordsville, Indiana. And, you know, what an eye-opening, um, you know, uh, situation there with it, the natural assumption of a reader would be that Crawfordsville, Indiana might face other economic challenges. And then you identify very quickly the real challenge there for their talent, being able to pe- have people um, uh, get the jobs they need and find the jobs they need was childcare. I mean, right. Just shocking that childcare would be such an issue in small town America, but it's an issue, I think, in any size city. Well, it, it's it's a, definitely an issue in any size city. We simply assume that it's there, but we worked very hard on a universal pre-K during my last year in office, and we found out a whole lot of things that people had assumed simply were not true. Uh, for example, anybody can send their child to a pre-K. No, not unless you got about twelve or $13,000 a year, and then you can find one that's got space for you. Um, and, you know, and then we also found out that we have to be careful about how we do things. We can't set up a system that is so supercharged on one end that it forces the mom and pops and the neighborhood providers out on the other end. Because if we do so, then we're creating another problem. Plus, we still have people who are going to use and need those services. And if we lose those on the neighborhood side, the prices rise on the other side because of demand. So at the end of the day, uh, the things that I think we have always failed to grapple with and to take charge of are those issues that are foundational. 
and it is foundational that if we are going to have children, we need to have them cared for, we need to have them educated, we need to take care of them during that first five years of life. The mistakes we make during that time are the ones we spend the next 75 years trying to correct. So that's absolutely crucial. And to the extent we can make that safe, nurturing, educational, and productive, then parents are even better off because now they can go back into the workforce without worry while their kids are getting quality education at a crucial time in their life. You know, uh, reading about the first five years of life in the book and the importance of touch, communication, interaction with those young kids had me almost in tears reading a book, which, you know, typically don't start crying, you know, reading books about policy. Uh, but I was almost in tears with my five-year-old at home and, and knowing that she certainly benefited from that. But so many other kids and so many other households have these challenges. How do we how do we fix that in American cities and and you you so eloquently outlined for people hey this is important for your local economy I mean if you want your local economy to thrive you need to have answers to these these issues another one that you mentioned is education and how do we uh, how do we change the way we look at education and I think that's something we've heard so much about lately regarding community colleges and filling the skills gap talk to us a little bit about what you learned both as mayor and then through writing this book on, on the education front? Well, first of all, it got to a point, and in, in, in I'm being only partially facetious, uh, because I think that there were p- kids who actually did articulate something like this to me, where STEM became such an overriding philosophy that if you weren't interested in STEM, you were almost relegated to a second-class status. If you weren't going to college and you weren't going to be involved in STEM, then who are you? You know, obviously that's what you need to do. But not every kid needs to go, wants to go, or should go to college. We still need people who build stuff. We need people who know how to repair stuff. We need people who know how to do things with their hands. We need artists. We need musicians. You don't have to go to college for those things. And because we don't, then we also have to set up programs and opportunities for those kids to be able to go out and pursue what they want to do. So we talked about some programs, one in St. Louis in particular, uh, where it was, uh, you could actually go to part of your high school there, where you spent time working and time on the job. And in in the specific instance I'll talk about was in the automobile industry, where you you would actually be paid for your time when you were working, but you would apply the things that you were learning in the school. And then when you got out, you would almost guarantee the job that was making forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year to start out of high school. That's the way that you build the family and start building family wealth. Now, as you work longer, you're going to make more. You're going to get better. You're going to move on. But the thing that struck me the most was is that some of those kids and their instructors had combined their talents and created a, a, an entrepreneurial cottage industry where they started selling parts and doing things with parts. And so now we're building and breeding entrepreneurship in the so in the same way that we're uh, making training. The other thing that's very clear, and I think businesses are starting to actually articulate this. We don't need you 
to go to college and get a degree to do half of the jobs that we have. What we would rather see is a certificate of confidence that you have gone through the course, you know this program, you know how to do it, and somebody has said that you have the competency to do it. That's who we're looking for. Now, and the last thing I'll say is, is that the laws need to be changed on the federal level so that you do not have to be in pursuit of a four-year degree in order to get financial aid. Mm. You know, if you can get a certificate of confidence in the field that you need in a year, but you can't get financial aid unless you stay there for two, then you're just wasting time and money and building debt that you don't need. Right. How do you feel uh, our new administration is doing on that issue? It feels like for the first time ever, we have an administration that is at least came in with the with the you know conversation about community colleges and skills. But do you do you see some movement on that front? I I see some hope, uh, but. You know, I, I try not to get too hopeful about things that are working on Congress when it's proposed by one side and the other side hasn't voted yet. Um, I like the programs. I like the ideas. We had some early conversations with some folks in the Biden administration. Uh, their ideas are very compatible with ours and what we were trying to do with the opportunity agenda. Uh, I think it's right on the money uh, of what they're trying to do. My concern is, is that politics in D.C., where this decision will be made, has become such a partisan, uh, confrontational, antagonistic blood sport that it may not pass simply because people want to make sure that the other party doesn't get a win. That to me is criminal. And all throughout this entire process, while all that fighting is going on, the people of this country suffer because they're not getting what they need. And then the politicians wonder why they're held in such low regard. At the end of the day, I recognized that when I was in office, I had one client, the city of Kansas City, Missouri. My obligations, fiduciary, intellectual, uh, imaginative, were focused on and to benefit that city, that client, and the people in it. And the good thing about it, and this is where I think things differ, in a city, on local government level, you're accountable. You go to a restaurant, sit down to eat, and there's people that you know or don't think they know you or saw you on TV doing an interview that will walk right up to you and start having a conversation about what they think about whatever is happening at that time. That doesn't happen with senators and congressmen. Right. Senators and congressmen show up at a restaurant and they're whisked off into a side room and they're held in there by themselves on the guys that they're doing business. But as a mayor of a city, you're accountable. And when you're accountable, you go out and try to resolve conflicts and issues that affect the people you're accountable to because you know you're going to see them and you know they're counting on you. Right. Oh, I mean, watching you mayors over the period of time you, you were in office and I mean, how wedded mayors came together in, in, in the United States working on national policy issues was just amazing to watch. And I, I really enjoy continuing to watch it. And I know we're going to continue to see you very involved in that group. You touched on one issue that I think American mayors are grappling with daily right now, and that is about modern benefits. Your, your section is on modern benefits. How are we getting gig employees, um, uh, 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 health care and insurance and different things like that 
when obviously there's benefits to the gig economy. I tend to work in the gig economy space uh, quite quite a bit, but uh, there's benefits to it. But you know, you also need to make sure to take care of these folks as employees. I feel like you had some really good ideas on that front. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, is that I think there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurial opportunities there and startup opportunities, not necessarily for profit, but uh, the New York drivers, for example, um, combined together. And there is a, a small fee that's added to every trip that goes into the bucket for workers' compensation benefits and pension so that they have something to draw on. I think that when you have um, thousands of independent the contractors doing the same job um, under the guise of independent contracting, then they should unite at least together for those reasons in order to make sure that part of what they're generating is used to help them sustain themselves down the road through injury and retirement. And that's something that can happen. Um, I've thought of, uh, of local entrepreneurs programs, for example, where local entrepreneurs would pool resources. Sources. And, and I thought of it primarily in terms of uh, uh, coming together with the, with city government and uh, a, pri a public interest in a, in a combination to create child care and early childhood education for the people working in those businesses and the city government moving forward together to reduce costs and provide services. City could provide a physical plant basis, for example, the entrepreneurs could do uh, work and provide funding for uh, uh, operations and teaching, those types of things. We could do those things together. There are opportunities to do it, but every single one of them requires that there be a collaborative effort and that there be a public-private partnership between the governmental side and the private sector in order to get it done. That's how we have to approach it, and that's the only way it's ever going to happen, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, so moved by one side or the other separately. Right, right. And, if, you know, it, it seems like if if uh, mayors and the, and the people that, you know, uh, had the role that you, you had and, and have the role that you had, uh, that they are able to create that national conversation better than anyone else. Where, where do you see the future of cities as far as mayors playing a role in national policy? I think it's enhanced and, and getting greater. And here's the very interesting thing about mayors on national levels. I don't I, I could probably tell you who some of the Republican mayors are in U.S. Conference of Mayors and some of the Democrats. And I probably miss on some. And you know why? Because nobody really seemed to give a damn. You know, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about who's a Democrat and who's a Republican. What we spent a lot of time talking about was, hey, Mayor Cornette, I, I, I've got this issue uh, in Kansas City with uh, we've got some serious infrastructure issues. I heard that you addressed infrastructure issues down in Oklahoma City. How did you do that? Okay. Or Mayor Nutter, uh, Michael, uh, I know that you had problems with kids running wild in a business district. We've got the same problem. How did you do that? And the reason I say that is because I made those calls. I made those calls to them and said, we've got this problem. I know you had this problem. What did you do? What should I be looking for? And in every single time, every time I ask another mayor for help, 
they gave it. Every time I was asked for help by another mayor, I tried to give it. We share information. We do not look at ourselves as competition. We're not running against each other. We're not pushing political philosophy. We're pushing action. We're pushing getting things done. <clears throat> we want to make sure that we are providing the services that our constituents demand every single day. They demand that they get better, but we're also working with the stagnant tax base so that as prices rise and we got to do better, we got to do it with the same money. So we've learned how to use data. We've learned how to share data. We've learned from each other about the things we can do with data, how important it is, how you can gather that data and use that data to make decisions that are darn near bulletproof. That's what happens with mayors. When you go to federal government and state governments, it's all politics. It's all I'm against you and you're against me nonsense. And frankly, on the local level, we don't have time for it. You know, uh, Mayor Sly James, getting things done, I think, is a way to describe you. You got things done. You really did well. Uh, we really appreciate this book, The Opportunity Agenda. I know that you wrote it for a specific audience, but I think it is something that could be read by anyone. I think people would love reading about the policies in this book and how it could impact local, state, and, of course, even the federal economy. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Matt, it's always a pleasure to see you, my friend. Stay well. Keep your family well. Thank you.